Good morning, everybody. It's uh, great to be together, and welcome to our home. This is the first time we've had our house church meeting in our home here in Winchester. Normally, we're meeting over at Draganos's, and uh, Adam is recovering, so let's be praying for him. And uh, he is always a contributor in the lessons. He's always he's always uh, jumping out with the answers to questions that I ask. We'll miss him today. So this this week and next, we're we're meeting here in our home, and I want to start off with a confession at the beginning of the lesson that uh, I thought about. Hey, we're meeting in our home, so I can. This is what a great opportunity to invite my neighbors. I'm thinking of people who live around us, people next door, people who live downstairs, two-family house. And then I thought, wait a minute, we're hitting the end of 1 Corinthians chapter 14. I said, this is probably not the week that I want to invite people for the first time to come and hear the lesson. I thought, maybe next week when we're hitting 1 Corinthians 15 will be better because... After all, we're in Boston, and in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 23, it says, If you're speaking in tongues, and an unbeliever or an uninformed person comes in, they, will, they may wonder, are you out of your minds? And I think that if, we're, we're to, if someone were to come in who wasn't familiar with us, they might wonder if we are indeed out of our minds. So what we're looking at is that lesson, today's lesson is 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verses 34 to 39, which is uh, about women speaking, or perhaps more accurately, not speaking in the church, in the assembly. Uh, here we are in Boston. This is definitely an unpopular and controversial subject to be tackling where we are, to, to put it mildly. Uh, next next week, we're looking at 1 Corinthians 15. It's less offensive to people to talk about people uh, of the graves opening up and dead bodies coming out of cemeteries, uh, the bodily resurrection of the dead, than it is to talk about what we're going to talk about today. And so uh, just, just, to, to, to admit, just to come clean about that. Uh, this lesson is something I have wanted to teach on for many years and was actually for many years prohibited from teaching on in, in the church that I was in. So this is uh, something that's, that's uh, very personally significant for me. I was raised Roman Catholic, so I was, I was brought up in a church where I would go to church and it would only be men, only be priests who would be uh, presiding at Sunday morning. Uh, then I went, during the course of my life, I've seen a major shift just in the last 50, 60 years uh, in how this passage is taught or ignored or just trampled on by most of the Christian world. Uh, when I was in my late teens, early 20s, I went to school in, to study engineering in Northern California. And uh, although I was studying engineering, the school was very liberal, very egalitarian in terms of uh, minimizing any differences between uh, any distinction between the genders, men and women. It's, it's gone much more that way. When I stumbled into a church of Christ in the um, about 30 years ago, I came into the church and uh, uh, having been to school out in California, a very liberal area, uh, one of the first things I noticed, I was uh, came in, my, my sister had invited me, was that they were all, men were doing all the speaking at the church service. And I 
with my background in California, the liberal influences that I've had, I say, well, this, what's wrong with this? Is this, is this church have a problem with sexism? Why aren't women involved in what's going on too? Uh, it, it seemed negatively. And then, uh, I asked questions and someone showed me in the scriptures. They said, well, here's why we're doing it this way, because this is actually, uh, what the scriptures teach that we need to do. So I said, well, all right, I, I understand why you're doing it. It's not a personal thing. This is something based on what the scriptures say. And that they backed it up and then and they said, they said, not only that, this is a church where we do everything that the Bible says. We do the popular things, we do the unpopular things. It's a restoration church. And they said, and Chuck, they said from the pulpit, they said, if if anyone sees something in the Bible that we're not doing, if you will point it out to the leaders of the church, we'll study it out, and if you're right, then we will start doing it. And I thought, wow, this is, this is wonderful. This is what a great thing. I just want to warn anyone who tries to do that, that you're, you're in most places you're in for a bit of a rough ride. And I actually, I actually accepted that and embraced that and over the course of the years would, would bring things up. And uh, David may edit me out of the tape for saying this, but I'll say it in this room anyway, that, uh, that uh, you know, the Bible talks about the church having, being a body consisting of many parts. And Allison wondered aloud many years why I happened to be the hemorrhoid of the church that I was in. So, because I would be bringing things up, because I would be bringing things up that would be really annoying to the leaders. Why aren't we doing this? Why aren't we doing that? Well, with this thing that we're doing here is violating the scriptures. So, uh, just, just, a, just a warning that if you really want to embrace this, that you're probably going to be a pain in the neck in most most churches church settings that you're in, and and also uh, to those who are leading churches that that we really need to have this attitude. So. Scene one, as a young Christian in my early 20s, in this church where I was told we're going to do everything the Bible says, I was going, I was attending a workshop once, and at the end of the workshop, they had a panel discussion, and the lead elder and his, uh, his wife were up there on the panel. And we were going to be asking questions, and the panel was going to be answering the questions. And they said, "What will you? What you please write down on pieces of paper any questions that you have for the panel, and we'll hand them up, and the panel will answer the question." So I wrote down on my piece of paper. I said, "The Bible says women aren't supposed to be teaching men in the church. So why do we have a sister up on the panel answering, fielding questions like this?" So. I wrote that down on a piece of paper, handed it in, and one of my friends was collecting the pieces of paper, saw what I wrote down, and wisely crumpled it up and shoved it in his pocket and didn't hand the question in. However, he didn't want me to get in trouble for, for, for saying that. However, he brought it up to the staff of the church, and there was a rather extended and serious discussion which ensued after the fact about, is this okay to do in the church or not? And some people may remember uh, that time who were a part of that church. They decided at the time, after extensively studying this out, they said, we're not sure if it's okay or not, but as a matter of practice, we're not going to do that uh, uh, going forward. Scene two 
maybe 20 years after that, big church service, over a thousand people in the Boston Garden, and a brother steps up and says, you know, we've been studying the scriptures, and we think that it's completely okay for women to be sharing in the church. And then after he sits down, the evangelist's wife steps up to the microphone in a church of a thousand people and shares her reaction to that message to everyone who's there. And uh, that was it was a significant turning point in the church, a very large evangelistic uh, church in Boston, where the, the role of the women in the church was uh, significantly changed. And they said, well, she can't preach, but she can share in the church. And there would usually be a brother standing next to her, which would indicate that, that, that somehow that she was not usurping authority by, by doing that in the church. So another brother and I who were involved in the teaching ministry went to the elders and said, you can't do this. This is not okay. This is prohibited by the word of God. That this is a church that insists that we're going to go by the Bible. We can't do this. You don't have the authority to change, to put in something to practice like this. We, we obviously, we read this passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, and uh, the conclusion was, I'll read it to you right now, the same passage that we read, 1 Corinthians chapter 14, starting in verse 34. This was the verse that we read to the elders. Uh, some, some translators will take the previous clause at the end of verse 33 and, and, and put that together with this. So it says, as in, all, as in all the church of the saints. And some will start the idea with uh, verse, the beginning of verse 34. So let your women keep silent in the churches, for they're not permitted to speak, but they are to be submissive as the law also says. And if they want to learn something, let them ask their own husbands at home, for it's shameful for women to speak in the church. Or did the word of God come originally from you? Or was it you only that it reached? If anyone thinks himself to be a prophet or spiritual, let him acknowledge that the things which I write to you are the commandments of the Lord. But if anyone is ignorant, let him be ignorant. So, uh, and, and that we, we read that scripture to the elders. I mean, it seems very clear cut. You just can't do something like that. And uh, they gave an explanation for why they thought it was okay to do what they were doing. And the bottom line is they decided that, you know, some committee of people decided it was okay, therefore it was okay. And, and what came out of it, they said, look, Chuck, if, if you want to personally believe this, that's okay. And, and if you and your wife, Allison, decide that you're not going to do something like this, that, that Allison's not going to be, be speaking in front of the church or sharing in front of the church, he said, that's okay. He said, but you can't teach this in the church. You cannot teach what you believe on this to the church. And you can't go around spreading around to other people because that would be divisive. And if you're divisive, of course, you're put out of the church. So I said, all right, I know what the Bible teaches. I'm not going to contradict anything the scriptures teach. If someone asks me a question, I'm, not, I'm going to give them a straight answer, but I'm not going to be rebellious. I'm not going to be divisive. I'm going to submit to what the elders 
in the church have laid out because they're the ones leading the church and they're the ones who will be called account for their leadership. Um, and when they said, Chuck, certainly it's wrong for, teach, for people to be teaching and women to be teaching in the church and be preaching in the church, but do you have any problem with women sharing in the church? And I said, I have no problem with women sharing in the church as long as they're silent when they're doing it. For example, if you're hungry and they want to share a bologna sandwich with you or something like that, I said, I have no problem with that at all. I have no problem with women sharing. They just have to do it silently. And they didn't appreciate the uh, the sarcasm that was behind that obvious comment, but uh, but there's truth there. I really I really meant that too. So for many years, and Allison will attest to that, uh, when a woman would stand up at church and essentially be even leading the communion service for all practical purposes, uh, she would notice that I would be very agitated sitting next to me, and then I would open my Bible. I'd open to 1 Corinthians for, for, uh, chapter 14. I would read this passage, and it would calm my spirit. Because it would remind me, Chuck, no, you're not crazy. This is what the Word of God says. The compass still points north, and it hasn't changed. If anyone wants to be ignorant, let them be ignorant. So I wasn't rebellious, and I kept my focus on the word of God. And it, God refined me through years of, of that. Okay, obviously, I'm no longer under those constraints. And I think this is the first time I've actually had an opportunity to teach this passage. So it's very significant for me personally. One of the challenges for us when we're looking at a passage like this is on the one hand not to overreact, to try to understand what was the original intent. It'd be easy for me to just say, okay, I'm going to react and swing to the other extreme from the abuses that I saw where I was and ignoring the scripture. Unfortunately, I think the church has really suffered tremendously over the centuries by people overreacting to bad practices that were going on at the time, where, where principles in the scriptures were being ignored. I mean, the Protestant Reformation, to me, was largely a complete overreaction to the abuses of the Catholic Church and their focus on works and what they were doing. And so they threw works completely out the window. They had nothing to do with salvation. It was just a tragic mistake. Churches that will look and see that there's no discipline whatsoever. You know, it churches where people are having the Lord's Supper, where they're involved in immorality, where they're, where there's, you know, they're involved in, in drunkenness, in, in drug abuse, everything else. And, and the tendency to swing to the opposite direction, whether it's on divorce, remarriage, or head covering, or baptism, whatever. The, 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 the church history is, is littered with people who've swung to extreme because of they, see, they see a problem in an area that the church is ignoring and a tendency to swing to the opposite direction. Okay, we don't want to do that in any area. You have to want to resist the temptation to swing to an extreme or to overreact. Say, okay, let's just look at the scriptures, calm down, look at the scriptures. Let's not overreact to what other people have been doing here and, and take a look at that in, in any area. I think that's what we want to do. 
We don't want to overreact. We also don't want to compromise and, and choose a halfway position where it's half the world and where we're trying to please the world at the same time. Let's, let's please the scripture, but let's also uh, play footsie with the world. Let's, you know, we don't want to do that either. We want to be honest, too, I think, about things that are clear versus things that might not be as clear. So some of the, in some cases, the basic principles are absolutely clear-cut, but some of the applications where it might be not 100% clear, to be honest, where one group could apply it in one way, another group could apply it uh, slightly different. We don't want to be throwing stones at people uh, on, on that basis and cause division in the body of Christ. But uh, certainly no compromise on any clear commands of Scripture. Years ago, uh, I was concerned. I think I thought there was some impending financial collapse that was going to take place, uh, whatever, uh, for for whatever reason. But a good friend of mine, uh, I think I read a book, and a good friend, I said, look, you you really need to watch out. Things could be going uh, south financially really fast about your your future savings, your retirement, everything else. I said, there's a book I want you to read related to that. The first two-thirds of the book, the author of the book said, here's the problem with the current situation, the economy. You need to understand why things are headed south. And then in the last third of the book, he said, and here's what I recommend that you do. Do this, do this, do this, don't do this, don't do this. And my friend said, just tell me what to do. I don't want to be bothered with the first two thirds of the book. I want to just get to the bottom line. I said, no, 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 don't do that. I said, you need to understand why you're doing what you're doing first. You need to do the hard work of understanding the reasoning behind it and then the application will make total sense to you. If you don't agree with the, with the reason for doing it, there's no point in just, but, but there's a, a tendency to, okay, just tell me what to do, and that's it. I want to just back up and, and, and take the time to lay the foundation for this. A couple of foundational questions. What does the New Testament say about men and women in the church? This is just one, one verse, one passage of Scripture. How does it fit in with everything else? Another question, Paul's instructions, could they have just been applied to a local specific situation in Corinth at that time, place, and culture, or are they universal and applicable today also? The third question is, well, what is he talking about when he says women being silent in the church? Does that mean absolute silence? Does that mean they can't sing? Does this mean Sundays only? What about if we're having a, you know, an evangelistic Bible study in the home? What do, you, what do you do in that situation? How do you actually implement that? So there's some of the questions that, that come to mind is looking at this. Now, in Galatians 3, it says in Christ, and, and when people were trying to uh, water down the, the, the teaching in 1 Corinthians 14, one of the places that people turn is Galatians chapter 3, where it says that there is neither male nor female in the church. Of course, it says there's neither slave nor free either, and uh, it doesn't mean that there was not a difference in the roles between slaves and masters. It says, masters, you need to treat your slaves kindly. Slaves need to submit to your masters. So, that doesn't contradict the idea of there being difference in roles because he says in Christ that there is neither male nor female. 
So I want to take a look here. Now, uh, uh, one of the things that Paul said in this passage that we read, in verse 34, he says, Let your women keep silent in the churches if they're not permitted to speak, but they're to be submissive, as the law also says. Now, what does that mean, as the law also says? Now, the word law, in 1 Corinthians 14, in this chapter, he quotes Isaiah, and he says, as it says in the law. So, the term law could be referring specifically to the law of Moses, which would be the first five books when Jesus talks about the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Or it could be the entire Old Testament. So we don't know for sure. But the question is, when it says, just like it says in the law, what's he referring to? Well, Paul talks about this in two other places, in Corinthians, about the role of women and tying it into passages in the Old Testament. Let's look at 1 Timothy chapter 2. One example. See how this ties in with how it's consistent with other scriptures. 1 Timothy chapter 2. We're going to read verses 8 to 15. And this is perhaps even more offensive to people in Boston than the passage in 1 Corinthians 14. But let's let's read what it says. Starting in verse 8, I'm reading from the New King James. I desire, therefore, that men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. In like manner also that women adorn themselves in modest apparel, with propriety and moderation, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly clothing, but which is proper for women professing godliness with good works. Let a woman learn in silence with all submission. And I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority over a man, but to be in silence. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. Nevertheless, she'll be saved in childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with self-control. So here he says that the, the directive that he gives about uh, saying women can't teach or have authority over men. This is, is obvious. The context is in, is in the church. He gives two reasons tied into the Old Testament. He says, for Adam was formed first and then Eve. That's in Genesis chapter 2. And then he says, Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. So, well, wait a minute, both of them ate the fruit of the tree. But he says, Adam wasn't deceived, the woman was deceived. So this goes back to Genesis chapter 3. So in the story of the fall, if you remember the timeline, in Genesis chapter 2, first of all, God tells Adam, before Eve is even created, you can eat from any tree in the garden, but not the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You can't eat from that tree because in the day you eat from that tree, you will die. So the command is given to Adam. Then Eve is created from Adam, chapter 2. Then Satan comes to Eve and tempts Eve. 
Eve's first reaction is, no, we're not supposed to do this. God says we're not supposed to eat of this. We can eat it. Satan says, wait a minute, you can't, you can't eat any of the trees around here? He says, no, no, we can eat all the trees, just not this one. But God says we can't do that, because if we do that, we'll die. And Satan lies and just tricks her, and, just, and he says that, well, if, if, if you uh, eat from this tree, you're going to become like God. So he, he, he deceives her. Satan knows that that's not true, and he deceives Eve. Then it says that Eve ate it, and then she gave some to her husband, and he ate. So Eve was deceived by Satan. Adam just took the fruit from his wife and ate. Adam knew it was wrong, but he wasn't deceived. So that's the distinction there. Both of them sinned. One was deceived. The other one was just flat-out disobedient. Okay, so, and, and Paul, I, I don't think Paul is, is, is getting down on women unfairly here because in Romans chapter 5, he goes on to say, he says, by one man's offense, the many died. He pins it all on Adam. That because of Adam's sin, all of us who then sin in return face death. So both Adam and Eve sinned. Eve's sin was involved her being deceived by Satan. Adam was just plain disobedient. Adam was the Adam, all people are descended from Adam. And it was Adam's sin that resulted in the condemnation of the human race. In the fall of the the ultimate fall of the human race, he, Adam could have said no to his wife. I'm not going to do that. God told me not to do that. So, it was his offense that led to the death of of uh, of us all. So that's Genesis two and three. Adam was formed first, not Eve. Eve came from Adam, and then it was Eve who was deceived, not Adam. They both sinned but she was deceived. 1 Corinthians 11, we covered this several weeks ago, but let's just touch on that again. 1 Corinthians 11 talks about how women need to cover their heads when they pray or prophesy. And Paul gives the reason for that in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 8, he says, For man is not from woman, but woman from man. So that goes back to one of the arguments that he gave in 1 Timothy. Nor was man created for the woman, but woman for the man. For this reason, woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head. So these reasons, again, go back to the story in Genesis. This, in this case, both going back to Genesis 2, not having anything to do with, with the fall, or, or Eve, Eve's, uh, there, was, there was no sin involved in either one of those things. So, Other passages that talk about the relationship between men and women, 1 Peter chapter 3 talks about wives need to be in submission to their husbands, pointing to the, the good example of Abraham's wife, Sarah, who was submissive to her own husband. Uh, in Ephesians chapter 5, 
is another one, it's verses uh, 22 to 33. We don't have time to, to, to hit on those right now. So, but when Paul, Paul says that uh, women need to be silent and in submission, as the law also says, pretty clearly from how he treats the subject elsewhere, he's talking about Genesis 2 and Genesis 3. So this has nothing to do with culture. This has to do with the creation and the fall of the human race. This is completely independent of culture, what he's talking about. Now, Paul is going back to the Old Testament law here to make his point. Now, wasn't the law abolished? Well, some things that were given to Moses carry forward. Murder was murder and adultery were that didn't change. Those things are still prohibited. There are certain things that did change when Jesus came along. War was totally okay in the beginning, but Jesus says we need to uh, love our enemies, we need to turn the other cheek. So non-resistance is a change. Uh, polygamy was allowed under the old covenant it's not under the new covenant that was a change divorce and remarriage moses allowed divorce jesus significantly restricted divorce and um, the kingdom being opened up to gentiles the requirements for circumcision and the sacrificial system the observance of the sabbath these things as paul talks about in Colossians, these things were changed. They were done away with. So certain things in the law changed and were done away with. Other things in the law, Jesus didn't really change them. Adultery, it was still wrong. Even on the old covenant lust, it says you can't covet your neighbor's wife. You can't covet your neighbor's good. That was part of the Ten Commandments. So that didn't change. The fact that children need to honor their parents, that didn't change. The fathers giving, having the responsibility to bring their children up in the training and instruction of the Lord, that didn't change. That men need to meditate on the word of God day and night. Slaves need to be in submission. We need to respect authority. These things didn't change. Jesus didn't say anything about them by and large one way or the other. They just, they just continued. So there are some things that Jesus didn't change. They were, they were established by... Moses, and uh, there was no need to, to amend them or to talk about them. There's a tendency to look at Jesus as the great liberator of women in the modern age and in modern churches. Jesus really didn't say that much about it one way or the other. They said, well, Jesus talked to the woman who was at the well. Well, there are plenty of people in the Old Testament who were talking to women and having great relationships with them. Eli talked to, to Hannah, who was praying, and had a, had a conversation with her. That's, this is not something that changed with the New Testament. So the relationships between men and women, Paul is saying that the same principles that applied under the Old Covenant still apply today. Those, those things did not change. There were some wonderful, great exemplary women. I just mentioned Hannah is an example, the, the, the mother of Samuel, Deborah. Uh, Ruth, Rahab, these were just uh, tremendous examples of women of faith. Peter holds up uh, uh, Sarah, Abraham's wife, is an example of faith. So there, there are many great examples of women who 
played prominent, significant, history-changing roles who were great examples of faith. And that, that didn't change with the New Testament. Thinking about the timeline that took place here, God tells Adam, don't eat from the tree. Eve doesn't exist yet. Eve's created from Adam. Satan goes and tempts Eve. She resists the temptation first of all. Then Satan finally lies and finally deceives her. She gives in. She gives it to Adam and he eats. And then all three are cursed by God as a result of the, of the, of the sin. The woman, it says, her pain will be increased in childbirth. And uh, the man, it says that he will be toiling and death will be the consequence. And to Satan, it says that the offspring of the woman would end up mortally wounding him, would strike his head in the end. So the consequence for all three for what happened there Then the man and woman are cast out of the garden. And then in in Genesis chapter 4, verse 1, it talks about Adam knows his wife and they they begin having children. So the first first, uh, uh, description of the husband, Adam and Eve, having relations with each each other is after they're out of the garden in Genesis chapter 4 and verse 1. So there's a belief among some of the early Christians that Eve was still a virgin at the time of the events of chapter 2 and chapter 3. Now, that, I mean, it follows logically because it talks about Adam knew his wife not, not until Genesis 4, they're out of the garden. So the Eve and Adam were, were, did not have intimate relations with each other while they're in the garden. I'm only explaining this because it ties into what I'm about to, to mention here. Irenaeus, an early Christian, was talking about this, and I think... As we appreciate the role of women in the salvation of the human race, you can look and say, well, gee, Eve gave in to Satan, and and that's what caused all the problems, and that's why women can't teach teach, teach or have authority over men, and so forth, because she was deceived. Irenaeus holds up a beautiful example of God's, what calls the recapitulation, or Basically, a summary that recaps everything that happened before. In the beginning, we have a, a, we have the the the, the young woman. I'll, I'll, re, I'll let me let me read from uh, the Ananiasine Fathers, Volume One, page uh, five forty-seven. It's a beautiful picture, which I think adds some perspective to appreciating how God feels about women and felt about women. And the recapitulation is basically everything is brought back to completion how it started at the beginning. So in the beginning, in the fall of man, you had the tree, you had Satan, and you had the woman who was disobedient, the young virgin. Okay? Mm. So I'm going to read some selections from, from Irenaeus, who's, he's from, uh, from uh, he was bishop in uh, Lyon, which would be in, in France, modern-day France, uh, lived between the year 130 and 200 A.D., so he's an early writer. And he says, 
The Lord was, was manifestly coming to his own things and was sustaining them by means of that creation which is supported by himself and was making a recapitulation of that disobedience which had occurred in connection with a tree. Although the obedience which he exhibited by himself when he was hung upon a tree, the effects also of that deception being done away with. So he says it started off at the tree and it was completed at the tree. The tree in the garden of the tree of good and evil and the tree of the cross. So it's brought about. And then he says, just as the former, meaning Eve, the earlier woman, the earlier virgin, just as the former was led astray by the word of an angel, Satan being a fallen angel, so that she fled from God when she had transgressed his word, so did the latter, being Mary, by an angelic communication, received the glad tidings that she should sustain God, being obedient to his word. And if the former did disobey God, yet the latter was persuaded to be obedient to God, in order the Virgin Mary might become the patroness of the Virgin Eve. And thus, as the human race fell into bondage to death by means of a virgin, so it is rescued by a virgin, virginal disobedience having been the balanced in the opposite scale by virginal obedience. For in the same way the sin of the first created man receives amendment by the correction of the first begotten, and the coming of the serpent is conquered by the harmlessness of the dove, those bonds being loosened by which we had been fastened bound to death. So it's a beautiful picture of the completion of everything, the tree and the disobedient woman who is listening to an angel and disobeys, leading to the destruction of the human race. But thousands of years later, it would be an obedient virgin, a young woman, responding to an angel. And it would be ultimately at, at, uh, by, by means of a tree that that would take place. It's the completion of the, the, the fulfillment of the prophecy in Genesis chapter 3 that would be the offspring of the woman. That woman was involved in the fall, but it was Jesus was the, that was the offspring of a woman only. That women are also reserved a special role by God in bringing about the salvation of the human race. That Jesus came from a woman, not from a woman and a man. So it's a picture of the importance of women and how God has elevated and used women to undo what was done in the beginning. Irenaeus also gives an example later on. It's a quote, at least it's attributed to Irenaeus in Nicene Fathers, volume 1, page 570. And he says, you know, why is it that Satan went after Eve and not after Adam? He said, a lot of people assume that it's because Eve was the weaker one. He says, but I'm not so sure about that. Now, this is just someone's opinion, but I thought this was actually rather interesting. He says, think about it. He says, first of all, she resisted Satan when he came after her. She said, no. But then finally he tricked her. So first of all, she resisted. Second of all, she had the champion deceiver working on her 
on the one hand, and she had her husband's instruction basically secondhand from God on the other. So she had what Satan said versus what her husband told her. And so she was tricked. He says, now let's take a look at Adam on the other hand. Let's use the same measuring rod to take a look at Adam. He was told directly by God himself not to eat from the fruit of the tree. Okay? And he gave into what his wife told him. He didn't even have a champion deceiver like Satan working on him. He gave into what his wife said. And there's no indication of any resistance whatsoever. At least Eve resisted Satan. So he says the whole idea that Eve was the weaker one, he said, I'm not so sure that's the case. And I thought, well, oh, you got a good point here. There's, there's, there's another side of the story. So I just want to appreciate that. Um, I want to also share for to, to give the brothers here a little perspective on this, this admonition. Now, the admonition is that the women who have a, a question, they should ask their husbands at home. This is uh, John Chrysostom, who uh, was, of course, he's, he's from, uh, uh, I think, late 300s, in his homilies on 1 Corinthians. And he's discussing this passage. I'll give you a quote from him, which I think is kind of interesting. He says that he talks about how the women need to, it says the women need to be silent in church. And he says, here you see why he set over them their husbands as teachers. So women have to have a question they should ask their husbands at home. For the benefit of both. For so he both rendered the women orderly and the husbands he made anxious as having to deliver to their wives very exactly what they heard. So he says the, the, the women were reined in, but the husbands were made anxious because they're now held responsible to be the teachers of their wives. They need to know what the word of God says, and they need to know what's been taught. I mean, what was the sin of Adam? I think a lot of it was laziness, spiritual laziness. He just kind of went along with his wife. And Paul says, you can't just go along with your wife. You need to be the leader of, spiritual leader of your wife. So there's an admonition there for the, the husbands as well. A bunch of practical questions come up in connection with this passage. Okay, and one, one of the questions that comes up in, in our group is, after the lesson is over, sometimes we'll have questions, and the sisters don't know what to do. Is it okay to talk? Is it okay to ask the question? Not okay to ask the question. And then uh, what some, some groups will do is to say, okay, now the service is officially ended. It's like we need a gong that we're going to sound or something like that. Now the service is officially ended, and now the service is officially ended. Now you can go ahead and ask questions, as if that means something. I, I, I'm, not, I'm not sure what to do with that. But uh, So the question comes up, well, what, what is appropriate and what's not appropriate in, in, in the setting that we're in? Or what about when we meet on Wednesday nights? Or what about when we have an evangelistic Bible study? Where do we draw the line? How do we put this into practice? I don't know. I'm not sure. 
exactly where to draw the line, and one group might do it a little bit differently than another one would. I want to read to you just some early Christians who commented on the scripture that might give us some hints or clues about how this was handled in the past. I'm going to quote from from two early Christian writers. Tertullian, writing around the year 207, he said, Paul instructs women to be silent in the church as not speaking for the mere sake of learning. In doing so, he goes to the law for his authority that women should be under obedience. However, when he veils the woman who prophesies, he demonstrates that even they have the right of prophesying. It's not permitted for a woman to speak in the church, nor to teach, baptize, offer, or to claim to herself a lot of any manly function, not to mention the priestly office. So he's, this is in uh, Ananicene Fathers, volume, uh, volume 3, page 446, and volume 4, page 33. And a quote from Cyprian. This is from Ananicene Fathers, volume 5, page uh, 546. He says, A woman should be silent in the church. In the first epistle of Paul to the Corinthians, let women be silent in the church, but if any wish to learn anything, let them ask their husbands at home. Also to Timothy, let a woman learn with silence and in all subjection. I do not permit a woman to teach nor to set over a man, nor to be set over a man, but to be in silence. And then he goes on and he says, uh, uh, this is, this, I'm sorry, this is actually from the Apostolic Constitution a little later. It says, we do not permit our women to teach in the church. Rather, they're only permitted to pray and to hear those who teach. So just some basic little, little insight to how this was understood in the church in earlier times. Obviously, they took this very seriously. They didn't think it was limited to Corinth. It applied to the church overall. And um, uh, that uh, the idea was that uh, the logical extension of that would be that they wouldn't be teaching in the church, they wouldn't be baptizing people in the church, they wouldn't be taking any position of, of responsibility. So when it says women speaking in the church, I would, I would assume that they're talking about addressing the group or speaking out. I mean, people would sing together in the church. That's, that's, not, that's not referring to that. It's talking about when Paul talks in 1 Corinthians 14, when one prophet starts speaking, the other one needs to stop speaking. So that's, that's the context of the discussion right there. I hope that's been, been, been helpful to get an appreciation. Men and women are have different roles in the church. And... God, they have different roles in the church, and this goes back to what happened in Genesis 2 and 3. Aspects of it come go back to even before the fall of man, and there are also aspects of it that are tied in with the woman being deceived by Satan. So, uh, But I think God is even-handed in, in, in dealing with men and women. But the fact that there's a difference in roles, we, we want to honor that and, and respect that. And I'll close with a reading from 1 Samuel from Hannah's prayer, which I think is good for men and women. We're not, being, we're not focusing on uh, uh, preeminence 
or importance, but we have, we have, we're keeping our focus in the right direction. In uh, 1 Samuel chapter 2, I'm reading from a verse that's based on the, the Septuagint. And this is Hannah who's offering the prayer. She says, God has weakened the bow of the mighty man, and those who are weak he has girded with strength. Those who are full of bread were made empty, and the hungry have forsaken the land. The barren woman has borne seven, and she who has many children has become feeble. The Lord kills and makes alive. He brings down to Hades, and he raises up. The Lord makes poor and rich. He brings low, and he lifts up. He raises the poor from the earth. He lifts up the needy from the dung heap to set them among princely people and make them inherit a throne of glory. The one who gives a prayer to the one praying, he blesses with the righteous years, for by strength no man can prevail. The Lord makes his adversaries weak. The Lord is holy. Let not the man of learning boast in his understanding, nor let the man of might boast in his might, nor let the man of riches boast in his riches. Only let the one who boasts boast in this, to understand and to know the Lord, and to do justice and righteousness in the midst of the earth. Amen.